Brian? What? Danger is in the air, my friend. The unthinkable has happened. My god, what is it? Scientists have determined that the most recent spate of sunspots have had an unforeseen effect. A most terrible effect. Well? Well, it turns out that all digital media was destroyed by the sun activity, including Blu-rays and DVDs. Do you know what this means? We have to go back to watching films on VHS? Yes! This is horrible! What are we gonna do? What are you talking about, Chris? This is the best day ever! My VHS collection is listed in Guinness! We're gonna be totally set! Oh, wait, hold on. Just got an update. Apparently only Beta survived. <sighs> Beer. Time is nigh to crank the digital noise so high. This episode brought to you by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Apparently. Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers. Because we want you to come to our neighborhood. <laughs> Welcome to Digital Noise. This is the Blu-ray DVD review podcast that rewinds through the past week and keeps a record of the titles to which you should give pause as well as your money. Fast forwarding through that segue, I am the life model decoy of your host, Brian Salisbury, and I am joined by the clown prince of digital media himself, Mr. Christopher Lawrence Cox. <laughs> hey! <laughs> that is horrifying. So many birthday party flashbacks. Ah, skipping over that. I promise not to touch you inappropriately like the clown did, Brian. Well, it's finally good to have that on record, that promise. You all heard it. Hold him to it. We're here because we care. But mostly because we've kind of become fused to this couch. We really can't get up at this point. It's just a habit at this point. I start to get cranky when I haven't had my digital noise. <laughs> You're apparently not the only one, and I actually really appreciate that, that people are like, where's the new digital noise? Oh my god, I need my fix. I got some, like, like assassination threats when we missed a week. <laughs> I guess it's good that people care that much that they would want to assassinate us. I was being careful with whoever knocked the doors, looking through my little peephole and stuff, my fisheye lens out there going, who is it? <laughs> what do you want? We just don't want to be Selena, guys. That's That's all we are trying to avoid. I do want to remind you that Digital Noise, like all the content here at oneofus.net, is available on iTunes. Just search One of Us in the podcast section. You can also follow this show on Twitter, at DigiNoiseCast. That's D-I-G-I NoiseCast. You can also become a subscriber. Hey, hey, how about it? Hey, right there on the left side, you'll see a little a little link that you can give uh, $1 to $25 every month or, you know, make a one-time donation. Whatever you feel comfortable giving, we would really appreciate it because that's actually how we're still able to provide this content. You have no idea how much we would appreciate that. That yeah. seriously is the lifeblood right now of the site, as well as is you guys buying T-shirts, uh, taking a look at our com – watch a movie with us commentaries and buying those, spreading the word. Another big thing is if you're on Amazon and uh, you click on any of our links to get to Amazon, you can – if you buy not only that product but anything else on there, it sends a kickback to us. So yes. we get some money from that. Uh, as well, it's helpful if you do buy something through us. They have those uh, reader comment pages. Leave a comment and tell people where, if you like the movie, where you heard about it. Say, hey, I, I listened to the podcast one of us on oneofus.net, Digital Noise, and they told me about this movie, and I'm glad they did. Absolutely. And hey, speaking of that store, I do want to tease you guys here a little bit. The next shirt that we're adding to that store is actually going to be 
a digital noise shirt. Uh-oh. So if you're a fan of the show, if you're listening to this right now and you're thinking, how can I show the whole world how hopelessly devoted I am to this particular Blu-ray DVD review podcast, we will have a shirt for you soon that will be available all the time that you can purchase and uh, and show your friends how badass you really are. Please, Mr. Salisbury, give me a t-shirt now. What is that? I don't know. I was trying to do please, Mr. Kennedy from Inside Little uh, Dance. Like, You're supposed like, to go, uh-oh. I, I, man, you are in love with that song, Something Fierce. That song is awesome. I don't even really like the rest of that movie, but that song is badass. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I really do love Adam Driver so much in that scene. I'm yeah. like, okay, I liked him in Girls, but now he's my favorite character. Because no, of that scene. no, he absolutely does rock that one, and I appreciate that. Hey, by the way, something you guys can do that would rock would be to join our forums. Uh, forum.oneofus.net. Uh, you can go in there and create your own discussion. You can communicate with the, uh, members of Us Nation who are already members of the forum. It's completely free. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people have been picking it up and rolling with it. We've had some fun gifts posted there, some interesting discussions, completely unsolicited about Doctor Who, about TV, a lot of really cool stuff, uh, about the optimal movie going experience was a thread I really enjoyed reading. And yes, please keep doing that. That's a lot of fun for us to read. And it's just a place for you guys to go and, and hang out with one another. And, uh, yeah, why not? Why not indeed, sir? You asked for it. We delivered. Now go fucking use it already. Uh, there'll be a lot more content coming to you soon. We are actually kind of been spending the last couple days and the next several weeks developing new content for the site. So I think you'll be excited to see some of the exciting changes and, and also return of familiar friend casts coming up. So absolutely. We've, we've been tuned, locked in the everybody. one of us net panic room for the last week or so, just coming up with new ideas and putting things in motion. So. Lots on the horizon from oneofus.net. But hey, it's time to reach out to the inner sphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letter Box. You've got mail. That's right. Thank you, Torgo. The Letter Box. Now, this week's edition, completely unplanned, is the Michael edition, because both of the questions I chose were from people named Michael, who I'm pretty sure are not from this country. I wonder if they're related. I, I, maybe. Maybe they're from China and Michael is just odd, because they're the surname and, and uh, is reversed. Huh. Yeah. That is very interesting. I didn't think of that. Yeah. But this Probably first question. Not, not a lot of Michaels in China, I don't think. This first question is from a guy who has more accent marks in his name than I have letters in mine. And that is Michael Sunderland, who asks, uh, I think the majority of chick flicks and romantic comedies are trash. In your opinion, what are some of the best chick flicks out there? Are there any worthwhile ones? Oh, my friend. My oh, friend. Boy. It's probably because I, I'm going to guess that you're probably a little bit younger and you're used to seeing the endless stream of garbage Hollywood shoves out at us underneath that label. That's, you know, I mean, every time you see Katherine Heigl, you probably break out into a cold sweat. Or uh, Kate Hudson. Yeah, indeed. I can't blame you for feeling that way, but... Wait a minute, I just figured it out. It's a KH conspiracy. If an actress has the initials Kate KH... Hudson, Katherine Heigl? Yeah. No. It's a no, fucking conspiracy, Catherine man. Hepburn. Oh. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, her romantic comedies are actually really good. Are great, yeah, like the Philadelphia mm. story, what have you. Anything with her and Spencer Tracy, pretty much. Back to the conspiracy drawing board. <laughs> Continue, Chris. <laughs> uh, but there really have been a lot, and, and partially this comes with just, you have to make your peace with the idea that there's no one genre that's going to be bad in and of itself. There are classic films in every genre, and romantic comedies and chick flicks, as it were, have just as many great films as almost any other genre, except for maybe horror, but that's just because I'm biased. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, why not check out something like the the great film Amelie, which is one of those ones where it's just visually amazing, so funny. Uh, it, it brought, it was, you know, by the guy who did Delicatessen and City of Lost Children, it's this incredible visionary movie that will actually melt your heart while you're impressed with how technically proficient it is. Or if you want something just a little simple, how about go back to the classic Clueless, which is a damn funny film. One of the first big appearances of Paul Rudd, who everybody loves now, but back when he was, he was young, he was a, he was a heartthrob in that one. And that's a truly funny movie that doesn't deserve to be as funny as it is. To me, the best ever romantic comedy is when Harry met Sally course uh with billy crystal and meg ryan which is laugh out loud funny so repeatedly throughout the whole movie i can go back that's that's like one of those if it's on cable i just stop and watch it you know you're like oh sure. well we're watching when harry met sally because it's on it's like the the schindler's uh, or not schindler's list i'm sorry let's watch schindler's Whoa. list again that'll be fun the the uh, shawshank redemption of romantic comedies if you will <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> that's like a weird turn <laughs> yeah that metaphor uh if you like something, if you you like, you know, chick flicks, but I'm not really so much into the comedies, try Thelma and Louise, which is really mm. a chick flick action film. One of the first appearances of Brad Pitt, Pitt with Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, uh, directed by Ridley Scott. That is a terrific thriller of a movie with lots of comedy bits with the about the bonding of two women who are on the run from the law. Terrific movie. Uh, you know, you can't go wrong with one of the early classics, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Sure. Of course, with Audrey Hepburn, which I still think is, aside from the embarrassingly racist Mickey Rooney Chinese character in it, it's still one of the all-time classics, and you'll understand why people worship the ground where Audrey Hepburn used to walk. Uh, and, you know, as, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the guy who did Love Actually and Just About Time just recently. The director's oh, uh, name. Michael. Or, no, uh, it's not Michael. No, no, no. It's, yeah, ah, damn it. pretty much anything by that guy is really good. My favorite of all his films is actually a, something I surprised even me because I saw it for the first Richard time recently. Curtis. Yeah, uh, Richard Curtis is Notting Hill, which I actually found to be really, really entertaining as hell and just absolutely charming. Are you going to take all of them or do I get to make a recommendation? No, no, no this is my, my time. <laughs> but the best of all of them is Titanic. Shut up. Go. Boo. <laughs> I'm sorry. I like Titanic. Yeah, that's great. Oh, you know, have a heart, okay? I have a heart. I feel bad for all the people who are dying while we're focusing on these two idiots. I, I don't know. I, that that movie never never grabbed me. Almost but. every great epic has a love story in the middle of it. Sure, almost all of them. Yeah, but I was I was far more interested in the actual Titanic than I was in the girl who wouldn't get her fat ass off the piece of door so that Leonardo DiCaprio could live to win a Golden Globe, but never an Oscar. But what about when he paints her like one of his French girls? Yeah, that was pretty good, right? It just means he painted her hairier. That's fine. Mm. That's great. Uh, for me, I, my romantic comedies, the ones that really grab me are the ones that have a hook to them. And by that, I mean things like Shaun of the Dead, which is a romantic comedy with zombies or, uh, Gross Point Blank, which is a romantic comedy with hitmen. That's reaching a bit. It's not reaching at all. These are, these are wonderful, absolutely spot on romantic comedies that just add a genre element to them. Or if you go even further back to the classic era, anything really with William Powell and especially my man Godfrey, which I think is one of one of the best comedies, the classic era comedies ever made, and I really, really enjoy that film. And 
you really can't go wrong with William Powell. Or as we said before, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy have a host of movies. That Adam's are, Rib, one of the first yeah. with them and still an enduring classic. And then, of course, uh, some I, – I don't, I don't like all of them indiscriminately, but I think some of the – uh, Rock Hudson and uh, Doris Day comedies are really good. So, I mean, you may have to reach back a little bit. And I do sympathize with you. If you're going to the movies right now, there's not a lot in the way of great romantic comedies being made because the ones that are being made are the ones that are the easy cash-ins because that's why Hollywood makes movies is to make money. There tend to be about, on average, maybe one a year mm-hmm. of a romantic comedy that's actually worth tuning into. And we had a great one this year, actually, uh, which was, uh, oh my gosh, uh, the spectacular now, I yeah. thought was a really great romantic comedy. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's and uh, it's funny the ones from the last maybe tw- ten years or so are not always the ones that were the most popular ones. Sometimes you have to look back and ask around. Like for me, the year Just Like Heaven came out, I thought that was easily the best romantic comedy that year, despite the fact it was overshadowed by a bunch of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Overshadowed by shit is actually not the name of romantic comedy. That's what happens. But it should be. So, yes, the answer to your question is yes, there are several uh, good, some several quality chick flicks out there and uh, suitable rom-coms for every taste. Oh, I forgot. Warm Bodies. That's technically. Warm Bodies. Yeah. I like that one a lot. It's really kind of a chick flick. Like yeah. Like a zombie movie. So. And it's got zombies, Chris. Yeah. Boom. Win. Win, win. So, the, uh, the next question we have is from... Oh, boy. Okay. Michael Orion Bacchus, who asks... Yes, Michaels. See? Uh, you're correct. They were both named Michael. What got you into collecting movies? He says, for him, it was the four-disc edition of the original Dawn of the Dead. It started his unhealthy addiction to special editions. Can you remember... I mean, I know you're like 60, but can you reach back <laughs> into your... your uh, Alzheimer's addled memory and recall <laughs> a moment in which you first got the bug to collect media? Now, Brian... I may, I, you know, I may have Alzheimer's, but at least I don't have Alzheimer's. That's true. Yeah. Oh, so, boy. <laughs> that's not funny. Wait, what isn't funny? <gasps> you know, here's the thing. Yeah, I grew up at, like, the when there was no video home recorders. There what? Weren't any, there was no media that you could buy like that, except little Super 8s. And I did, in fact, have, uh, like, a couple of those. Like, I remember I had Swiss Family Robinson and stuff on little Super 8 reels. There's, like, 20 of them. You mm-hmm. <laughs> have to keep changing them out every five minutes or so. <laughs> it was like a severely lessened, shortened version of the movie. But, um, you know, when VHS and beta first started coming out, those tapes new were like a hundred bucks. Yeah. There weren't a lot of people who were actively collecting them. But when they started releasing those recorders where they could record off television and everybody had HBO, man, I was just taping everything I could find. Like, I was like, I don't care. I just want to have it in my collection. And that was kind of the beginning of it where it was like, I was one of the first people in my neighborhood who had a recorder like that. So mm-hmm. it was like, okay, so I'm going to have all this and my, that'll get more people who want to come over to my house and hang out because they'll be like, oh man, I heard you have all this Monty Python on tape. Yes, I do. And from that, it was an easy translation to once it started becoming where VHS was just that much, you know, you could pick them up for $20 or less. Then it was like, okay, now I'm going to actually start buying these. Fast forward to the time, and I was never as big as a VHS or format aficionado as you were, but when DVD first started coming out, those things went to thrift shops almost immediately, mm-hmm. and you could pick those up for 2 or $3 a pop, and that became my thing where I was like, I just wanted to have the great collection just for my own you know, sake. I was like, I, I want to have all, there's hundreds of movies I want to own so I can watch at a whim. So I would like spend a whole day sometimes going from pawn shop to pawn shop, just like looking through their dollar to five dollar DVD bin and picking out what I didn't have. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. for me, it, it boils down to uh, my grandmother, actually, 
My parents both worked, so during the summer, my brother and I, uh, for a few summers, actually went to my grandmother's house every day. And uh, now you have to keep in mind, like, my family's really young, so my grandmother at this time was, uh, like, just about to turn 60, but not quite. Um, so she would go to garage sales every week, and she would just buy VHS tapes. Like, pretty much no matter what it was, she would buy them uh, sort of in bulk. And we would spend summers there, and I would open this closet, and it would just be floor-to-ceiling VHS. And it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen because it meant we could watch whatever we wanted because it was right there. And I remember one of the – I remember I went through cycles. Like the first thing I did uh, – the first time I saw Die Hard was that way. And then I got really obsessed with terrorist takeover, this or that. So I watched Under Siege. I watched Passenger 57. I watched uh, Pierce Brosnan movie called Detonator with Patrick Stewart. You just called Die Hard on a – Die Hard on a. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I got I got on a Die Hard on a roll. Uh, and then I started watching the James Bond films again because she had those like – the original VHS set that was put out with like the sort of weirdly pastel boxes – so I ran through all of those and watched all the James Bonds. And then I was like, now I want to watch spy movies. Now I want to watch this. Now I want to watch that. So I, it was really because of her that I got, I kind of became enamored of the idea of having a collection of media, having all of these movies. And then sure enough, when I got into high school, that's what I started doing. I would go to like half price books and I would start buying VHS of movies that I liked. And I would buy sets of like Alfred Hitchcock or horror movies or whatever. Um, so I think that, and then actually it's a funny story. When my grandmother decided she was getting rid of all her VHS, which was about, uh, three or four years ago, I happened to be home and she's like, well, I'm just going to throw them all out. And I was like, can I have them? And she had some really cool, like hard to find stuff. Like she had a movie, a very rare set early Saturday night live movie called it came from Hollywood has Rita Rudner, Dan Aykroyd, and a lot of the cast members. You can't find that anywhere. Yeah. And it just happened to be part of her collection. And that was sort of what it put the bug back into me. So that's why I've been collecting uh, a lot recently. Well, so there you go. I can pinpoint it to pretty much one spot. Well, Michael, do you feel you got your answer? Michael? Hello, Michael? We've lost Michael. Does oh, anyone know where Michael is? Oh, wait. They can't actually hear. Oh, right, right. We, I can't, we can't actually hear what they're saying back. I keep looking for like a uh, a chat room and then I remember, oh, wait, no, this isn't live. This no. is one. This one's recorded. No. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're slamming the lid closed on the letterbox for another week. Thank you so much for your questions, Michaels and everyone. Uh, and now it's time to dive into the reviews. And I want to remind you once again. Everything we talk about, there will be a link for it right here on the page. And if you go to Amazon via that link, even if you don't buy that item, if you buy anything once you get there from us, we get a cut of that. So please, please, please consider doing that. If you're going to buy something from Amazon anyway, come here first. It really, really helps out the site. And it requires nothing of you other than to come here first. Indeed. Everybody win. And tell your friends. Tell oh, everyone oh, oh. you know. <laughs> that would be great. Well, I think we would be remiss in our duties if we didn't start this show with Archer Season 4. Well, yeah, you kind of have to. How do we not start with Archer? You're just excited because you, didn't you get to go to the Archer Live? I did get to go to Archer Live. And this is why you should die in a fire. <laughs> I did not get to go. But fortunately, Archer Season 4, uh, which, like you said, just came out on a, a, a cool-looking Blu-ray set featuring Archer with his fake mustache. It's got, like, a color form mustache you can take on yeah, and off. it's bizarre. Uh, <laughs> actually comes with a bonus feature of a sort of shortened, like, 20-minute featurette of the Archer live performance. So you can kind of get a taste for it, even though apparently they're doing something different everywhere they go. Well, yeah, and you have to remember that the one that's recorded for this one was recorded before season four ended. So yeah. they were teasing things like the, the final episode. The one I went to was teasing the first episode, which just premiered last night and was fucking awesome. I haven't watched it yet. Don't oh, spoil anything. I won't spoil anything. But right. I will say if you haven't watched it and you want to get – and you're not – 
super worried about spoilers, you can actually go. I wrote an article on the site, uh, some of the things I learned at Archer Live about what they're doing this season, some of the returning characters and whatnot. So They're taking big chances with this one. They're definitely. breaking away from what they're used to, and I feel bad for the animators. I really do. <laughs> I'm serious. Because like, when you do animation, you almost depend to some level, budget-wise, on reusing a lot of the same backgrounds and stuff and they're like they've pretty much thrown everything away <laughs> you, you know he should really feel bad for were the uh the asl interpreters at archer live who had to sign things like dick nuts and sploosh and covered in cum i think was our favorite one. Oh, that's good yeah. yeah uh but this this season is honestly i think they've never really had a bad season although i will say i see why they want to do something different now season three is just starting to make you feel okay you guys have kind of done what you're going to do with the, or season four, you've done what you have to do, what you're going to do with the ISIS thing. Where are you going to go from here? Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, like I said, amazing that they're like, they realize like season four or five is when most comedies first start to feel a little tired. You know, first start to get, get that, like you're, you're a little bit like, okay, we've been here. What else you got? That's not to say this isn't awesome. I mean, starting off from the beginning where they satire, like the fact that H. John Benjamin, who voices Archer, also voices the lead character on the show, Bob's Burgers, and he actually becomes Bob on Bob's Burgers. Yeah. But in the Archer world, I mean, come on. That's so awesome they did that. The uh, bookends for this season kind of involve that. It's like you start off with something that, you know, that is another voice that H. John Benjamin does. And then they end the season with referring back to Adam Reed's former, you know, gigs. And I thought that was a really cool bookend for the season. As well as John Hamm playing the villain at the end. John Hamm playing Captain Murphy. Yeah. Was so good. Uh, but lots of good stuff like that. Lots of great appearances. Anthony Bourdain plays the, the bastard chef in an episode where Archer and the gang have to be in, uh, to be undercover at a high level restaurant while, while on his reality show. Really fucking funny. Timothy Oilfent here uh, plays Archer's old best friend who has... Such a great episode. Little more than best friend feelings for him. Little more. Uh, and there's actually little nods to the first season of Justified hidden inside of it, too. That's the thing about this show. It it breaks a lot of the rules that television has always had, that comedy has always had, about, like, you can't be too obscure with your jokes. Mm -hmm. It says, fuck that. It's like, we have so many jokes in here that even if you don't get one, you'll get the next one. Yeah. And when you there is that joke that's just for you and you can't believe someone else knows about it, you love it so much more for Not that. Not too many animated shows will make references to the father of eugenics or the beloved illustrator of gnomes. <laughs> this show is unafraid of such references. That is very true. Not to mention all the referencing last season to uh, really old 70s Burt Reynolds films. Yes. <laughs> yes. When he's just listing them off, I was like, yes, yes. No, that was no good. Yes, yes. <laughs> but a uh, good storyline. This one they introduce the character Ron Cadillac, who is a uh, sales car salesman who, or owner of a bunch of different car salesmen, lots very successful. Who uh, Archer's mom Mallory get, gets married to right at the beginning of the season. You know, off screen, mind you. And he, uh, they actually do some really interesting stuff with him. At first, you're like, okay, where's this going? But there's an episode where he and Archer are forced to bond, and it is one of the funniest episodes of the whole season. And not only that, but he's voiced by Ron Liebman, who is uh, Jessica Walter's real-life real husband. Yep, real-life husband. Boy, talk about your nepotism. Jesus. Right? Come on. There are actually a couple of episodes. It was it was great to get this box set because there were a couple episodes I must have completely missed or they didn't get DVR'd. I hadn't seen that Anthony Bourdain episode. Oh, really? Okay. And I also hadn't seen Coyote Lovely, where uh, Archie goes to Mexico to try and stop a, a people smuggler. Right. I was like, these are entirely new episodes to me. Hooray! Yeah, sometimes that'll happen. Yay! But Yay for failed DVRs, I guess! 13 episodes that are great. Uh, 
only two extras. Like I said, now the Archer Live is great. It's about 20 minutes long. It's about a three and a half minute short that uh, focuses on Krieger, the crazy scientist who's obsessed oh with his little hologram anime tentacle girlfriend that is an anime starring him and all the characters of Archer fighting like him as a giant tentacle monster. It's basically crazy. like as close to hentai porn as the Archer folks could get and put on the Blu-ray without getting sued. But I'm a little surprised there wasn't more here, quite frankly. No, you're right. You're definitely right about that. This is the kind of show where we want as much... You know, insight. Ins- I mean, that's why we would pay money to go see Archer live is because these people are so fucking funny and they're so charming in their own way that we want to spend as much time with them as possible and learn as much about this really creative and amazing show as we can. And they just didn't deliver very much on this one. Um, Did you – I'm curious. Uh, in Archer live, they do a thing on, on this where when uh, H. John Benjamin comes out, it's not actually him. It's just – big, handsome, muscle, muscly guy who looks like Archer on the show. And then he's and doing the he's voice. He's doing the voice from backstage. And then you actually see H. John Benjamin finally, and he looks like, you know, a combination between you and me, basically, <laughs> but about a foot and a half shorter. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't actually uh, do that at, at this show, but uh, they did have people come up on stage who were dressed as, like, people who had shown up to the event dressed as various Archer characters, reenact a scene, which I thought was really fun. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, overall, that makes it worth it alone. But, sure. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, this, it's 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 worth it alone just for the episodes. Archer is still the, one of the funniest shows on television, if not the funniest. So, highest recommendation. Definitely. Archer, yes, definitely. What? Shut up. <laughs> okay. Next up, we're going to talk about Saving General Yang, which I assume is the sequel to Saving Private Ryan. Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> Say, that would be odd if it was. <laughs> I don't remember a General Yang there, and I wasn't, wouldn't think that uh, in China they were huge fans of that movie. Probably but, not. Probably not. Probably even less so in Japan. But this is actually by the classic, uh, legendary action director, Ronnie Yu, who has, oh, yeah. uh, done a lot of pretty well known in China films like The Bride with White Hair and The Bride with White Hair 2, uh, as well as doing Bride of Chucky, Freddy versus Jason. I like Freddy versus Jason. I don't care what anybody I says. Know you do. Fearless, which is actually one of the only really good Jet Li American films, and now Saving General Yang. Now, oddly, this film was met with a lot of criticism because it's, I think it, it's like there's been a lot of different versions of this story have already been told. Uh, apparently this is going way back in folklore and this is a lot of the creative crew from the Ip Man franchise who reunited to do this. Uh, the story here involves this general, uh, during a reign that had, he had never been defeated, but he was dealing with political issues because one of his seven sons basically was in a fight for honor with one of his sons and that guy died by accident and there's personal feelings, yada, yada. So when it's time to go out to, to war against these people who once every 10 years or so seem to come up, the smaller tribes seem to come up and try and attack them. The other guy fucks General Yang over and leaves him out to hang. Yang to hang. Yang to hang. <laughs> uh, Yang is... Basically out on his own, desperately injured, and what, what, you know, with his small remaining team of badasses, but what are they going to do? They're too far from home. So the seven sons decide they're going to put together, uh, their own rescue mission to go out and find him, despite being told the ominous warning that, uh, seven sons will, uh, leave, only six will return home. I can't do that math. Come on. How so, many sons is that then? I, don't worry about it. Does father, is Father Abraham involved somehow? No. <laughs> I've, I've lost track of the number of sons. Uh, no, a lot of earlier versions on this is that they've 
they've done it from where it's all women instead of sons who go out um. and do it. Like a lot of the sort of, hey, chick, kick ass chicks films. This is actually one of the first that tells one that's supposedly closer to the what may or may not have actually happened in folklore. Uh, but he's there's so many of these type of films now of the sort of big historical big battles being reenacted films i mean still john john woo's red cliff is probably the best out of all of them but there's literally hundreds of these that have come out in the last couple of years and this is just not one of the better ones mm-hmm. it's not bad if this had come out like five years ago i would have liked it a lot more and, and it's like i said there's nothing inherently wrong with it except that it doesn't offer much beyond what's already out there that we've seen the fights are extraordinarily well choreographed but we're not dealing with it man type fights these are big you know a bunch of guys with swords and spear type fights you know and and you know full-on battle uh the cinematography is gorgeous ultimately the biggest flaw here is that none of the characters are really given much in the way of development or uh sort of an emotional range at all it's all very kind of cold and it's not till the end to really start to feel anything for them at all due to a little sort of misinterpretation of what the gypsy's warning was <laughs> just like the gypsy woman said no, it wasn't a gypsy it was a fortune teller of some sort i don't think they have gypsies in in, in hong kong ancient hong kong but you know. i still am not entirely sure where the gypsies are those romany they get around they get- <laughs> <laughs> nomad jokes uh yeah I, you know i think this is one of those where people who love those films they're still gonna they're gonna like it but mm-hmm. I, I, I even i was shocked by some of the harsh criticism like uh Somebody from Australia, Andrew Chan, said, The world is full of bad cinema, but there are films that know they are bad and somehow manage to entertain by being unintentionally funny. However, there is no such saving grace in this movie. I, there's a lot of stuff like that, but there's also a lot of stuff saying what I'm saying. It's not a bad movie. It's just a just-okay movie. And with all the competition that's out there, that makes it hard to really recommend. So maybe a little more entertainment value would have saved Saving General Jack. Indeed. Well, that's too bad. We're going to move on to Badges of Fury. Now, what is Badges of Fury? I assume it's a buddy cop movie from the 70s. No, it's Badgers of Fury. Oh, even better. Oh, my God. Buddy cop badgers. I'm sorry. It's not. That would be awesome. I want to see Honey Badgers of Fury. That's going to be the best. Oh, my shit. That should be the first movie from uh, one of us productions. It really should. (laughs) These (laughs) these two don't give a shit. Honey Badgers. Uh, no, Badgers of Fury is another Chinese film. Sorry, it must be the Chinese segment. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, You're just going to want to do another one in 30 minutes. I know, right? I will, though. That's true. <laughs> this one came out in 2013, and yes, it's a Jet Li film. We're not seeing as much Jet Li these days. Why? Because he's in his 50s. Man's getting old. He's probably broken half the bones in his body at this point. He's... Pr- gotta be as rich as they as you get over there at did no point. one notice how he pieced out of expendables 2 which is like yeah. all right i'm done bye bye see it drops the mic <laughs> and then literally drops out of the movie yeah you're like wait wasn't there that wasn't that guy in there i mean he literally like goes all right guys i got something else to do see you later and he's gone <laughs> Uh, this one stars, once again, Jet Li and, uh, actor that's actually been getting a lot more popular over there. When, when Zhang, I'm probably saying that wrong. It's probably Zhang or Zhang or, I don't know, Broccoli. I don't know. <laughs> broccoli, I, yes. I've known, I've been informed I pronounce most of my names completely incorrectly, but he's been working regularly with, uh, a Jet Li most recently in the very mediocre Sorcerer and the White Snake. We reviewed that. Yes, we did. And I didn't much care for it. Me neither. Badges of Fury is a lot better, but that being said, it feels more like they're like Leslie Nielsen should be in this than anything. Oh, it's it's like and that is so in essential to the culture and like a lot of the jokes, they just don't translate 
it's hard to laugh at a film that's constantly referencing other movies. Like at one point they're referencing other Jet Li films and stuff. And there's, they reference, uh, uh, what is it? Oh, just a lot of, a lot of things you're like, what does that have to do with anything? That's just kind of awkward. And it's a cop movie, a buddy cop movie where it starts with where there's a guy who I would just assume was the Joker who's killing people with poison that makes them die with a giant smile rictus on their face, which is, you know, if you're going to be a serial killer, probably the coolest way to do it. Sure. Uh, but the young. He said not at all being a serial killer himself. <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. Still working on that formula though. Plausible deniability. Uh, this, the young detective played by Wen Zhang is, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of not taken seriously by anybody else in, uh, in the, the station because he makes a lot of mistakes despite being ultimately, you know, good at martial arts, moderately competent. He just jumps to conclusions, but his buddy, uh, jump partner, kicks to conclusions. Yes, indeed. Played by Jet Lee, who they refer to as elderly repeatedly and you're like going, <laughs> really? <laughs> God damn it. Uh, it keeps coming in regularly, basically to kind of secretly save his ass in the middle of fight sequences, which are not bad at all, but it, Ultimately, it's nothing you've seen so much better. There's a lot of scenes you can tell Jet Li is being replaced by a double. And you're like, really? And, and what it, child with martial arts training do they get to double for Jet Li? <laughs> he is a tiny dude. Well, it's China. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, it has this weird storyline where there's two sisters and it looks like one of them is the killer, but they get, they're alternately falling in love with them, too. It's just it's awkward. It's not funny in the way it's supposed to be, although there are a few laughs in here that genuinely got to me. And it does a lot of that, oh, my least favorite thing there is in comedies. And you exclusively see it these days in, uh, like, Asian films where they actually throw in sound effects like, boy, oh, 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 and Lord. like, you know, really corny, like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, like I know. Hanna-Barbera Hanna cartoon yeah. sound effects. You're like, who thinks that's funny anymore? I just, just baffled by who put together the sound editing on this thing but i don't know it is i'll say this it's a, it's a nice they did a good job putting it together it's a nice looking film and jet lee has some good martial arts moments and here and there there are there is a certain amount of appeal from just like culture shock of it of just kind of laughing at it in ways that you're like this is so bizarre that this is that they thought this was a good idea <laughs> you'll laugh a lot of times at stuff just being so bad it's it's like okay but i'm sure it, to you know native speakers it i i hope to native speakers they saw it and just went groan because ultimately this isn't that, this isn't that good <laughs> well fair enough chris has unleashed unleashed his badge of fury Against badges of, you know, just fuck just that. Forget that. Just, just forget that. Just throw that segue. Just next. Right in the trash. Next. Well, I, I, I'm sorry. I am what I am. Speaking of that, We Are What We Are is the next movie we're going to talk about, which is, of course, the remake. Now, I can't remember. What was the, was it a Spanish film? It was Mexican. Mexican film, uh, which played at Fantastic Fest a few years ago, the original. And this is now the remake by director Jim Mickle of A Most Unusual Family. To say the least. They're a little strange. They're a little odd. A little off. Do never, do, do not ever accept an invitation from this family to have you over for dinner. Because <laughs> they'll have you Because they will have dinner. you for dinner, yes. You know, the odd thing about this film, and I, I, I've seen the original as well, which I liked okay. I, I was never one of those like, God, it's amazing, like some folks are. I was like, no, it's good. It's good. Yeah. I just wasn't crazy about it. The odd thing about this is they're shooting it like a... Oh, like a Southern Gothic art film. Yeah. And not at all like a horror movie. No, no. There's there's a lot of really interesting cinematography going on that sort of belies 
the basic genre component of the film. Indeed, and really good acting almost across the board, uh, especially from the father here, Frank Parker, played by Bill Sage, who's very dour and serious. And when right in the beginning of the film, his wife dies of some sort of illness, he's basically forced to be, to be a single dad with his two daughters in their very humble uh, and frugal existence, basically living out on the edge of town, not really friendly with anybody else in town, but having lived there for a long time. And you're seeing as the film goes along that there's definitely things in this family that, that are secrets from the youngest members. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, it's being made clear that the, one of the daughters is about is going, coming of age and it's time to start telling her what these secrets in fact are as they're revealed to her. Thus are they revealed to us. Honestly, if you've even seen, seen a trailer for this film, you know what the big secret is. Yeah. Uh, in fact, if you just listen to this review and Brian's play on words, then you get what the big secret is. Whoops. And I think if there's a problem with this film at all, it is in and of itself with the marketing. And mm -hmm. there is a nice surprise there that would come about quite organically if you didn't know what you were watching and getting into. Well, the, but the problem is, and you're right, you're absolutely right. But the problem is, if you don't have that, how do you, how do you sell this movie to somebody without that? Yes, yeah. it's, it's a movie about weirdos who live in the woods. Yeah, even saying it's a horror movie, there's too many. It's hints deceptive early on that yeah. of, of what it must be. Whereas you could watch it not knowing it's a horror movie and think. I have no idea what those hints are, are are leading us up to. And that's ultimately you've got a problem, like a problem with a film that most of it is this sort of long, like we're not going to actually say what it is. We're going to throw little hints, but lead up to it film with something we that's already given. We know what it is. We're like, get on with it. Get yeah. to the, just so we can move. But that being, but you know, once it gets to that point and in the last, you know, in the end, once it gets to this conclusion, which is for a film that's very, serious and very artistic for most of it and very sort of placid and calm the end explodes in an orgy of violence that is really quite shocking when yeah. it happens yeah i mean i i really like this film i'm not i'm not in love with either version frankly but i do appreciate that they focus so much on the human struggle like of, of the actual humanity of these characters that in any other film honestly in a lesser uh genre film like this they would paint this family to be like the Sawyer family from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. They're not loons. They're not, they're not a bunch of just like inbred crazy people. Well, they're crazy, but they're, or at least, you know, the, the parents, but they're crazy in a sort of, well, in a our, sympathetic in way, a, in a very like, look, this is just the way it's always been. Yeah. Like our family's been doing this for generations. Hence the and title. This is the way we've always done it. This is who we are. Yeah. yeah. We are what we are. This is, this is what we're supposed to do. And yeah, there's no, yeah, there's no leather face. There's none of that kind of stuff going on. It's just they seem all too human. Right. And there's there's sort of a manipulation of your allegiance there that's really compelling and uh, a really a, a feather in the cap of the film itself. Overall, I felt like it was it was a solid film and I really liked the cinematography, the performances and the basic story. It just didn't come together as a whole package for me and, and to something that really wowed me. And I think the I think the ending, as much as you're right, it does sort of explode, and a lot of uh, a lot of the blood dams get burst. But um, I don't know; it it kind of fell apart for me a little bit right toward the end of the movie. You know, that was the part I I personally enjoyed the most, but maybe maybe because I was like by that point, like, come on, something's got to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful looking film, but even so, like I said, when you know what all this is leading to, 
there's no there's really not as much tension about it it's just like okay come on i think the term that we're going to come up with for that feeling is view balls <laughs> when you've been watching you've been watching a movie so long and nothing's been happening that when it finally does you're like oh my god yes thank you and that's the thing it's 105 minutes it's not even that long of a film but right. it, it does kind of feel like it at points I, like I said, I liked it, but with a lot of reservations, uh, really good performances across the board, definitely. I thought uh, both the daughters are actually really good in this as well. I believe that's Julia Garner and Amber Childers, I believe. Uh, Childers. Yeah, Childers. Childers. Uh, and it also comes with almost an hour-long making-of documentary that's completely, really in-depth. So, I don't know. If you like it, this is, you know, that's that's cool. If you're going to put together that, like, not just an EPK documentary, but, like, we set aside – we made a point on filming this to actually make a good documentary about it. Sure. Hey, well worth the money. Definitely. And uh, you could also call this movie, you could call it We Are What We Are, or... We Are What We, we Eat. Or We Are What We Eat, <laughs> or We Don't Know What the Hell Happened to Kelly McGillis. What, uh, what do you mean? Kelly McGillis, man. What happened to her? Oh, she um, probably said something rude to Tom Cruise, and that was it. And he cursed her. Yeah. Like, she looks not Like, I understand she's gotten older. We all get older, but... Like, I remember when I saw her in Innkeepers, and I just went, wait, I thought Kelly McGillis was in this movie. Who is this? Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think when uh, Kelly McGillis, when she was in Top Gun, she was already uh, older. I mean, she's 56 now. Yeah. You know, and so she was already for a love interest in a movie like that, older than you'd usually cast. Still very beautiful. She's in her mid-50s. Come on, she got a little matronly. It happens. <laughs> a little matronly. Uh, okay, a lot matronly. She got slapped by the Judy Dench stick. <laughs> hey. Anywho. <laughs> That's Dame Judy Dame Dench Judy Dench stick to you. We're going to talk about Machete Kills now, probably very briefly, because I still have not seen this movie, and uh, they decided that they sent a copy to Chris, so they weren't going to also send one to me. Really? Yeah. <laughs> this is like the first time we've run into that in a long time, and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to fight you on, on Machete Kills. Have you uh, seen Machete? I've seen Machete. 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 See. Have you seen Austin Powers? See. This is Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me to Austin Powers. Uh, which is to say, oh, okay. goofier, much like more ridiculous. Like, ah, oh, fuck it. This, you know, at this point, we're just here to have references to things. And- well, that's good because I thought the first one was way too morose and just took itself way too seriously. <laughs> What's the thing? I'm actually not a fan of it because me it, neither. It tries so hard the original to at least, while not in the bounds of reality, to at least have this plot that mm-hmm. is like. You know, like, oh, this has to be the ultimate Latino movie and we'll, like, make it where it's involved with Latino issues. And it actually gets – you're like, why? You're making an exploitation film. Who gives a fuck? Just have fun. Yeah. Unfortunately, in this one, they listened, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) And while I can't say I like Machete Kills (laughs) – I actually liked it a little better than the first one, if for no other reason that it, there's so many more what the fuck moments. You know, I got you. I mean, it's hobo with a shotgun level of of uh, what the fuck. See, moments now you've got me intrigued. God damn it, Chris! But the thing is, it's just it's not that fun. It's just not that clever. Uh, the idea here, of course, it starts with a trailer for Machete kills again. In, in space, space, which is also follows the film because this is supposed to be the one of the the joke of the whole last act is, hey, it's a threequel, you know. Uh, uh, so, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but okay, with a bunch fine. of which a bunch of really bad dated would have been dated 15 years ago Star Wars jokes. You're like, okay, but the idea here is machete 
played by Danny Trejo, uh, and Jessica Alba are trying to capture weapon dealers, uh, who've been supplying Mexican drug cartels when suddenly this other weird mass group shows up, kills all of them, and kills Jessica Alba. Bye! Not around for any for- further sequels unless you decide that she turns into a robot or something. Fucking spoilers, man. I- I'm just saying. Well, it's the first five minutes of the film. Oh, okay. Uh, Machete is arrested by William Sadler, uh, who's a corrupt racist sheriff, but then the president steps in and goes, no, no, you have to let him go because I need him. Played here by, uh, a new actor. Carlos named- Sheen. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, Charlie Estevez. Oh, I'm sorry. The film says Charlie, introducing Charlie Estevez. That's right. Which yeah. is kind of a funny joke. That's his real name. His real name is Estevez, people. Yeah, he is actually Latino, so that counts. Or at least half Latino. I don't know. Something. I, I think he. I think he's fully Latino, and the, the Martin Sheen just decided to change the family name for the fuck of it. Well, Emilio so, said, fuck that. And Emilio was like, fuck you, man. I'm going to make more Mighty Ducks movies. <laughs> he was in Repo Man. He gets a pass for there life for me. That's true. But uh, so he goes, all right, so what's the problem here? It turns out that there's this guy who's this sort of super criminal uh, who has got a uh, uh, he's a psychopath played by uh, with Marcos Mendez by Damien Bashir, who's saying he's going to fire a nuclear missile at Washington, D.C. if the U.S. government doesn't intervene to stop the drug cartels in, in Mexico and the corrupt and corruption of its government. So Machete agrees and he goes there hooking up with Amber Heard, who's gorgeous here like she always is, who's an undercover beauty pageant competitor, Miss San Antonio. Uh, and it leads off onto a series of like, you know, cute set pieces so they can have all the various different actors who are friends with Robert Rodriguez and Latino to be in this film. Sofia Vergara has a role in here where they literally steal from Austin Powers the tits with guns and knives in them bit. You're like, come on, man. Because really? if you're going to steal from somebody, it's those movies. Uh, you, it doesn't really get interesting at all until he actually meets Mendez, uh, who his associate is played by Marco Zoror, who, even though he dies almost immediately... Guess what? He's in this a lot after that, so don't worry. Marco Zoror <laughs> is a fucking badass and needs more work. He does. We like Marco Zoror a lot. But the funniest gimmick in this film is that the bad guy has multiple personalities. So sometimes he's this hero of the people, and sometimes he's this James Bond villain, and mm-hmm. he switches back and forth on on a random bit. And basically, he's got a bomb, this nuclear missile, attached to his heart. So if his heart stops beating, then it's going to send the missile off to DC. So they've got a machete has got to take him to without to, to America to find the guy who designed this thing. This is so ridiculous. I'm yeah, sorry, you're still, you're still talking. Are you aware of this? This is just the basic plot. <laughs> <laughs> has to send him, has to get him there while this guy's also sent a hit out on himself for like millions of dollars. So there's assassins everywhere trying to kill him. <laughs> I know, I know, right? I, I could go on and on. Uh, it ends up with Mill Gibson being the secret bad guy who is, I guess, fun in his part, but nothing really we haven't seen before. He continues to live long enough to see himself become the villain. Yes, he does. Um, the best thing about this whole thing is probably a killer called the Chameleon that is the ultimate excuse just to cast more of his friends in this that is played by multiple different people. First, Walton Goggins. Uh, later, you get uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., Antonio Banderas, Lady Gaga <laughs> for a while, who, like, every time he gets seen by somebody, you know, reaches under, pulls off the rubber face mask, and there's another person under there. And then there. talks about how he would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling kids. Uh, yeah, meddling essays. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I said, this is so ridiculous. There are points I had to give it credit for being kind of funny, but I didn't feel like I was laughing at the parts 
I was supposed to laugh at more than not. Yeah. Once again, it's just whenever you try to make a bad movie on purpose, it's a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you do that? Well, Rodriguez has never figured it out, if you no. ask me. Uh, most of his films are just cloying with the degree they want you to go, ha, ah, look how bad it is. Ah. I think his friendship with Quentin Tarantino has instilled in Rodriguez this idea that he can do what Tarantino does, but he's never figured out the art of making parody and referential sort of film love his own. Because that's what Tarantino does. Tarantino references so many things, but he does it in a way that makes it uniquely and distinctly his own. And I feel like... Robert Rodriguez, on the other hand, has just been like, just keep throwing references and keep throwing silly things at the audience, and it'll be sort of a so bad it's good. It's like, no, it really doesn't work that I way. I think Rodriguez thinks that because he has made it all definitively cultural, mm-hmm. that, that therefore that's his stamp, and so that makes it special somehow. And it's just, no, not really. <laughs> yeah. You can't make, you can't go into a movie like this and say, well, it's okay if it's bad because it's supposed to be bad because it's referencing movies that are bad. Yeah. It's like, no, you have to make a strong, competent film that references and nods toward bad movies that can have some sillier aspects, but can't just be bad because the movies you're referencing are bad. That's a crutch. And uh, you know, people who liked Machete Machete. tend to really hate this movie. Like Mm. hate it. I I hate it. Machete. (laughs) But Machete kills was just over that line enough into silly that I actually will say that I thought it was it was at least more watchable than the first one was. Let's get a whole bunch of dosekis and some tacos and we'll watch it again. And well, uh, you'll watch it again. I'll watch it for the first time, and we'll see if that improves the experience at I all. I have to watch it again. See. Mm. Por supuesto. Uh, unfortunately, it's uh, not much in the way of extras. It's got 20 minute making machete, machete, machete kills, uh, <laughs> with just interviews with a bunch of the people, very EPK type candid behind the scenes footage and interviews. And there's 20 minutes of deleted and extended scenes. Although from what I hear, it's almost identical to the corresponding scene in the film. So it's really just kind of like, why is this even here? Right. So I don't know. When the best thing in your film is that Mel Gibson drives around a light, a, a land speeder from Star Wars at one point, then you probably. <laughs> don't have much so <laughs> well that was machete kills and from there we are moving on to the happy house happy happy which house, is house. never ever once what i have called this place where we record man <laughs> guess you have no you were it is so a, drunk it's a dark and evil place full of bad memories Good, bad memories. That's true. Good, bad memories. Well, the happy house is the latest attempt by an indie filmmaker to make a horror film. Now, there's a lot of good indie horror films out there, specifically by people who love horror. The problem is this appears to be an indie horror film by a guy who doesn't really know anything about horror and maybe is even pretty disdainful of it in oh, general. No. Uh, he wants to make a mumblecore film ultimately. Oh, no. And, and, and sell it as a genre film. Oh, no. Uh, oh, no is right. Uh, it This features a young couple, Wendy, played by A A or I Cash, I'm not sure how you pronounce A-Y-E as a name, and Hubby Joe, played by Khan Bakyal, who they obviously are having troubles with their relationship. They decide a weekend in the country will be the thing to help them out, so they get a bed and breakfast. But they get there and they find out it's got this overprotected puritanical grandma lady running it played by Marceline Hugo who has this three strike rule oh you know you you can only make three mistakes against this long set of rules and then something bad will happen wow okay so right you're like okay i see what this is all right this might be fun once it starts getting bloody but i okay i'm just going to say it here you guys i'm going to spoil it so if you don't want to know 
it's nothing. It means you don't get blueberry muffins in the morning. Really? Yeah, you go a day without her her really good blueberry muffins. That would give me the view balls. Despite the fact that the film itself shows her at one point pouring blood into, presumably blood, into the muffin mix. And you're like, okay, well, this is clearly where this is going. She's got a big, very quiet son who carries an axe with him everywhere. But then all that is just like, well, you know what? That's that. No, it was just a big mistake. Uh, and they bring out of nowhere after a long period of just people in the house and her older, her younger sister, just, just sitting around talking about shit that none of which is very enlightening or entertaining or funny at all. A uh, police guy comes by and says, oh, there's a serial killer on the loose. So uh you guys want to be careful. Who, of course, a serial killer makes a beeline for their house. And the last third of this movie is just them hold up in the house while the serial killer waits downstairs. That's really this movie. That's, oh, boy. I mean, I don't even know how to tell you how incredibly fucking dull this film is. <laughs> it's, Jesus Christ. There is just, what were they thinking i mean maybe if they actually the stuff was funny but it's i you can see where they're kind of trying to make things seem like they're funny like oh it's ironic funny but it's done in such a sort of almost npr sort of way like like i can't be bothered to get excited about this joke or bring any energy to it or even to be clear that it is a joke you know it's when you're laughing is it a film that's supposed to be awkward it's not especially awkward either Ultimately, I couldn't tell what the point of this thing was. And believe me, when you see where this thing ends, you'll be like, you'll be like me going like fast forwarding through the credits going, there's got to be a real ending in here somewhere. I mean, was that it? Was that what is the alternate ending just an actual ending? I mean, you the way the actual, you know, the demise of the serial killer, if you will, the way it's shot is obviously supposed to intend that there's a metaphor here. But I'll be goddamned if I could see what the hell they were trying to say. It feels like the most heavy handed metaphor ever but what the fuck is it <laughs> something about butterflies and rare butterflies and maybe we should protect and and take care of our serial killers i don't know I'm if not... a butterfly in beijing flaps its wings a shitty filmmaker in the states gets funding for his mumblecore horror bullshit this is bullshit i'm <laughs> sorry i don't know what the fuck is going on here absolutely skip this thing uh yeah boo Boo indeed. <laughs> to this horror movie, we say boo. And we're going to move on to Enterprise Season 3. Finally. Damn, I was waiting when you were going to get here. Finally talk about something I really, really liked. And yes, I know. Star Trek Enterprise. You're like, wait a minute. I thought you always said Enterprise was horrible. I did. I was having watched halfway through the first season. But when it aired, I went, this show sucks. I don't want to watch it anymore. Finally got sucked back into watching it because uh, they sent me the first season Blu-ray. And I was like, you know, this it's been so long since I've seen any Star Trek. I'm enjoying this. Can so you essentially rage quit Enterprise originally I, when I, it was I, on. I did. Okay. I completely rage quit Enterprise. Uh, and it's still, season one, it's not that great. But it has some really good episodes in it. Season two, once it, just like season one, not that great. It's got some good episodes. There's some nice, you start getting to know the characters a little bit better. You're like, okay, I'm starting to get into this. Season three is like, oh my God, good. <laughs> You're like, they were basically looking at Deep Space Nine and its successfulness, which mm -hmm. is Deep Space, Nine, Deep Space Nine became successful when they were like, you know what? We should focus on one long story instead of having all of these just separate episodes. And that was when that show really took off. Sure enough for Star Trek Enterprise, even though for a lot of fans who had already abandoned, by, abandoned it by that point, you know, it was just too late for, to save the ratings. Season three is actually super fun because of the fact that it just 
says, fuck it, we're going to do the exact same thing. We're going to, we're going to build this story that will have startling repercussions in the, in the universe that they've built here. I mean, this is the, basically the first deep space, you know, Star Trek show and the idea that it's, it's, you know, back in time. It's a prequel. The ship is for the first time has a warp drive that's fast enough that they can actually go, you know, past or much past the next couple solar systems and they're exploring where no man has been before at least at this point and it's at least as far as the new show goes the shows after where no one ever went again as near as i can tell <laughs> <laughs> but the enemy is the zindi who is apparently it's the name of for a collective of about six or seven intelligent species uh hailing from one planet deep inside this place this area of the universe called the delphic expanse that no one goes to because it's filled with these like space warp bubbles, basically places where reality and space itself can warp and get fucked up and people die and horrible shit happens. And no one has yet figured out a way to track through this. But the reason the enterprise is heading out to this area, why would you, you know, it's not like, it's like going to West Virginia on purpose. Why would you do that? Why would you do it? Exactly. Nobody would. Sorry to West Virginians, but you know what I mean? Uh, this basically they send out in the, the the season ender of season two in the beginning of this one this weapon to earth that fucks up the shit out of earth like uh, it has a giant laser that cuts earth deeply from florida to venezuela and kills like hundreds of millions of people why couldn't it just cut florida off nobody would have I know, noticed we would have been like yay our friends the zindi yeah. <laughs> um you know, this is like, and this was in reaction in a lot of ways, of course, to 9-11. It was there, like, sci-fi has always tried to, uh, you know, good sci-fi anyway, has always tried to react in some way to what was going on in real life. And this was certainly, a, obviously, having talked about a lot and much thought about reaction to 9-11, because it's, there's a lot of these, everybody's very angry, naturally. They're, these humans, for in a show that's always been about peaceful exploration, mm-hmm. uh, they're out for blood. They want to get out there and they want to murder the fuck out of this race, you know. And as the season goes along, you see them, you know, realizing not all Zindi are this way. And as they they don't even know why the Zindi, part of the mystery is why did they even do this? Why would they do? We never even heard of them. Why would they attack Earth like this? They're so far away. And then because it's apparently there's some sort of prediction that Earth will eventually be responsible for the destruction of their planet or some such thing. Anyway... You know, myth, for all extents and purposes, mysticism, you know, you could take that to mean religion in, in context, but it actually ends up being just really solid in the way it builds that stuff in ways that sure, you could probably predict the type of things they're going to do, but they break all kinds of rules for Star Trek and for this type of television along the way, really excellent effects, tons of just edge of your seat battle scenes, like really great space combat stuff, lots of cool new characters. It is not only the best season of this series, I mean, easily the best season of this series, but it's one of the best seasons of Star Trek. And I know that's strong words indeed. Uh-oh. But damn, it is really worth watching the show if for no other reason just to watch it. It is so much fun. Now, still, it's of course still finds a way along this voyage to this place to have still kind of one-off episodes. I mean, they're still on the way, but they've got to have their own, they've got to have character-based episodes and little things that happen like that. Like at one point, they of course go back in time to Detroit in 2004. <laughs> Of all places. <laughs> uh, and there's a, they go on a planet that resembles the American Old West that happens to have humans, but way out in the middle of this Delphic expanse where no one's ever been before. It's like, and those episodes are more fun than they're not. 
honestly, this is good stuff. And I really didn't expect it to, which may be at least partially responsible for my very strong positive reaction to this. Cause was not, you know, the last thing I thought was that this was going to be anywhere near as good as it ended up being, but it's also the darkest season of anything Star Trek has ever done. The darkest timeline. Yeah, indeed it is. It's the darkest timeline. It's the darkest timeline. <laughs> I mean, there's, Everybody is going through some pretty black shit in this one. Everybody, especially uh, the Vulcan character on the female Vulcan character on here, who is has to deal with a poisoning that leaves her completely vulnerable to human emotions, basically, hmm. uh, you know, from then on out. Right. <laughs> you're like, now you are, Vul even though you're Vulcan and you've been raised Vulcan and it means everything to you, you actually are feeling your emotions. And as we all know, Vulcans don't deal with that very well. Not especially. Yeah. No. They kind of turn into dicks. <laughs> they, t they turn into Romulans, really. <laughs> True story. But anyway, yeah, really recommend it. Lots of little bonus features all the way through. Dick si Disc 6, of course, has the most, as is typical towards the end. They throw in a lot of the stuff, just like long featurettes about every single aspect of the season. Uh, well worth your money. The one downside is, of course, much like the other seasons of this, uh, that for whatever reason, the fix-up just isn't as good as it should be. Uh from DVD to Blu-ray. It's not as great looking or sounding as you'd expect. It's really not much better looking than the DVD version, but you do get all these bonus features and it is nice to have this collection one way or the other. Right on. Well, from there, we're going to bring the room down a little bit and talk about <laughs> the killing fields. What are you talking about? That's a fun movie. No, no, no. Nor is it a bunny in the Echo Man song. <laughs> it is in fact a Echo movie. Echo in the bunny Echo in the, yes, right. Strike that, reverse it. It's actually a Joy Division song. Is it really? No, it's not. You're in, stop doing that. You know I don't know music. <laughs> Can't just mess with my head like that. This is a 1984 drama uh, starring Sam Waterston and centers mostly on the uh, the Cambodian War and the the atrocities committed by uh, their leader Pol Pot. So hey hey, all right. <laughs> This is going to be fun. A laugh riot from start to finish. You know, this is one of those nice little digibook things. I love the way this type of packaging. It's my favorite type of packaging where it's like a hardback, miniature hardback book where it's got a very firm placement of the disc in there. Uh, it's got, you know, the pages are bound into it like a book with a lot of like background material and photographs. I love that. But that being said, uh, you know, this movie, no matter how you package it, is worth it. It won eight BAFTAs, uh, the British Film Awards, and three Academy Awards when it came out in 1984. And it is one of those films that will come in and grab you. An interesting choice was made by this director, Roland Jaffe, who at the time was nobody knew who he was. And it, for a script that was one of those, like everybody, it was one of those, like, we got to do this. We just can't figure out how it was surprising. They picked a, you know, a nobody who chose to film it with more. He doesn't film it like a fake documentary, but he uses a lot of techniques of documentary filming and lighting in this to give it a very naturalistic feel. It really makes you feel like you're there while you're watching it. Uh, the story here, of course, is in 73 uh, in, in the Cambodian capital, Phnom Penh. The Cambodian National Army was fighting a civil war with the communist Khmer Rouge, which was a result of the Vietnam War, which was, of course, still raging at that point, overspilling into Cambodia. Uh, Sam Watterson, is it Watterson? No, yeah, Sam Watterson is a journalist for the New York Times who works with Dith Pran, uh, who's a Cambodian journalist and interpreter for him. Uh, and when they write, when Sam Watterson gets there, he finds out that apparently an American B-52 has bombed a town in Cambodia, which is weird considering we weren't at war with them. So it was like, what, what happened? Uh, they get 
sort of drawn up into the whole secrecy of the military about this whole thing and find themselves on the bad side of the American government for basically trying to find out the truth. As this goes along, and it, it does skip across several years as it goes to till finally 1975, we see basically the Keimer Rouge taking over and all the journalists being evacuated. And the, the worst part, like the fact that Sam Watterson and Dith Pran have become the best of friends and collaborators. I mean, they, they are bosom buddies if there ever were. They're being told that, okay, the Americans and now all the white people can get, can leave. Anybody who's Cambodian has to stay. Which brings us basically to the halfway point of this film where, okay, everybody left. What happened to Death Pran? I mean, yeah. th this was actually based on a book called, deceptively, The Life and Death of Death Pran by, by the, the original guy. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Schoenberg, Sidney Schoenberg. And the actual story of what was going on over there while the Khmer Rouge were in power is haunting and it's disturbing. Horrendous. And when you see the scene that is where this movie got its name from, it's those images are never going to leave you. No, no. And it's, it's a tough film to watch. I remember we watched this in one of my psych classes in college, and it was just one of those things that it was the kind of movie you had. I mean, you know, much like Schindler's List, it's an important movie to watch to understand history and to understand sort of... The capacity of human beings to commit atrocities toward one another and hopefully in that understanding develop the mechanisms to prevent that from happening again. Um, it, but on the other hand, it's one of those movies you're going to watch and you're going to need time to decompress. Agreed. Uh, th honestly, the thing that will keep you going here is that the film found its heart in that friendship. In that relationship, yeah, uh, and, definitely. And ultimately, that's what keeps you going is this hope for this character to survive and make it out and that – and the most fascinating thing about the story, and one of the things that disturbs me, there's no, there's really no special features that came attached to this at all, which is a real That's shame odd. because there's like an almost feature length documentary that came out with, I think, the Australian version. Huh. Uh, I assume that they, 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 oh no, I'm sorry, the British version. It's called The Making of the Killing Fields. No idea why, why that wouldn't be here. Some sort of rights issues, I guess. But the real story behind this and the actor who played, uh, Death Pran here, uh, Hang S. Nagore, he was a non-actor who had survived the actual, like, Cambodian Khmer Rouge massacre. Wow. You know, he lived through all that and finally ma managed to get out and make it to America, saw his whole family die, like, murdered in front of him, and knew the director who, over time, talked him into taking this role, who went on to win the Academy Award and the British uh, Acting Awards for, yeah, for best, best actor yeah. no for best well for best actor in british uh, best supporting in on the academy awards although oh. he very well i mean come on he's the, he's the second main character in the film yeah it seems weird that they would give him supporting but i mean that that's a whole other discussion about the academy went on to have a career of his own as an actor uh became friends with the real life uh uh death pran uh and Ended up being assassinated under mysterious circumstances in real life. What? Yeah, yeah. Like, as apparently people broke into his house and shot him execution style. And while... Uh, oh, the oh you mean the real Not, Death No, Pran. no, no. I mean, I actually, I mean Hang S. The actor? Yeah. The Death Pran died of pancreatic cancer a few years ago. The actor was murdered. Jesus Christ. Yeah, living in Chinatown in Los Angeles. Uh, it's still very unclear what the reasoning was. Uh... But, of course, there's always going to be rumors that it had to do that it was, you know, that some of that group years later basically saying, well, this is a revenge killing for making this movie. Good God. Yeah. 
creepy. But either way, fan-fucking-tastic movie. Looks great on Blu-ray. It's really kind of... It's one of those films that is an essential watch of any good film student. Certainly anybody who who is interested in vaguely in historical or war films. Fantastic. It's dramatic. It's harrowing. The relationship between these two guys is spectacular to watch and it's so tense at points you will call it a a uh, pull pot boiler uh so you even hold on to that one i have i've been waiting i've been waiting oh, and now God that it's it. now that i've said it i never have to make another pull pot joke <laughs> which is great i win <laughs> fuck that i don't want to joke about that <sighs> anywho let's move on to a film called closed circuit uh yeah this was actually a theatrical release this year How i thought i heard that but i it was in and out of theater so fast i didn't get a chance to see it because it is one of those films that feels like it probably should have been directed dvd ah. uh it was a british american crime thriller uh directed by john crowley starring eric bana rebecca rebecca hall as the two main characters here who are the defense attorney and the special advocate for a man who is being accused as the primary suspect and mastermind of a terrorist attack in London. Uh, we see in the beginning of the film a bomb going off, which apparently killed hundreds of people in the context of this film, not a real event. Uh, but as these two who have been instructed early on not to communicate with each other in any way, I'm not sure why, what the point, I'm, I'm very unclear about British law and how that works and why two people defending him weren't allowed to communicate. But regardless, we find out that apparently they had a secret affair at one point and they decide rather than talk about it, just to lie about it. So, okay, well, there's no reason that we should bring that up. We don't even like each other anymore. But turns out there's a conspiracy. There's always a fucking conspiracy. There's uh, always a fucking conspiracy. To, to frame the guy make him look like he really did it when he possibly didn't but wait it's even deeper than that maybe gasp maybe this guy it wasn't even so much about him not having done it but that he was actually a plant for mi5 the the secret service itself who supplied the equipment for the bomb that would probably look bad in the newspapers maybe a, a touch of course it, like it's lots of like preachiness and people like you know, pounding their fists and even scenes with like assassins from the MI5 trying to kill these characters, but having to try and speechify themselves before they do anything or while they're doing it about like why this is the only just and reasonable response to whatever, you know, it's not really a lot of people accuse this of being ridiculously implausible. And I didn't really have so much a problem with that. I didn't think it was ridiculously implausible. It was just it, it wasn't even all the speechifying, which did get a little bit heavy handed <laughs> at points and the conspiracy, which keeps getting deeper and deeper. And ultimately, the point of this film really being you kind of a you can't trust the government. The government knows everything that's going on. The government's probably responsible for everything bad that goes on. Finally, a movie degree. that plays with that novel concept. But that these people are. They're just not interesting. There's mm. no chemistry between these two at all. And they keep trying to make it like, oh, they still love each other secretly, but they can't do anything about it. Who cares? <laughs> there is not the single – Eric Bana is like so bloodless and most – he's a good – he can be a good actor depending on his directing him. But half the time he seems like he's just – he wants to be on like a downtown abbey. He's like very, very strong. Downtown placed. abbey? Downtown abbey, not downtown. Down abbey. <laughs> you can always go, go. downtown. Abby. I kind of want to see that version of it. Right? It's like in the tenement in Sesame Street. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like the Wiz version of Down, Downton Abbey. Totally want to see that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess ultimately my problem here is by the end, and there's this whole thing. It's kind of a spoiler, I guess, but the idea they're going, hey, 
is it okay if you don't kill us and we'll just promise not to say that we saw anything? Which is very like, wait, what? The main character said what? <laughs> main character say what? And, and they're like, yeah, I guess. You're like, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call bullshit on I know, that. so many good actors in this. You've got, uh, uh, I always forget how you say his name, but Siren Hines? Syrian. Syrian Hines. I believe it's Syrian Hines. Hines. Jim Broadbent, who is terrific in this, but not in it anywhere near enough. Julia Stiles has a role near as a New York Times uh, reporter. Lots of familiar faces. Syrian. But everything is just so gray and bland. And by the end, you're like, I can barely remember what fucking happened in this film. <laughs> it's just, it's just a meh thriller that never seems to get the energy to be excited about itself. Hmm. Put that on the fucking poster, why don't you? Yeah, and smoke it. And smoke it. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that review, Chris. And now let's talk about thanks for sharing. Boy, that was a. Uh... That almost feels like you planned that. It almost feels like I come up with these segues ahead of time. And some of them I do, and some of them I try to do on the spot, and they fail miserably. Well, this is a 2012 comedy drama. I don't know why it took so long to come out on Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, it says comedy drama, but come on, this is a drama. It's not even really a dramedy. There's not much comedy in here. I mean, like, to say it's a dramedy would be to insinuate that to be a drama, you have to have a complete absence of comedy on any level. Right. <laughs> It's a drama. Uh, and it's got Mark Ruffalo and Gwyneth Paltrow being advertised in its leads. But ultimately, this is a ensemble piece about recovery and 12-step processes, which I know immediately makes most people tune out, as it should. Because most of those films, even when they're good, like that one with Michael Keaton. Do you remember that one? Where he's a oh, recovering addict? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good movie, but unless you deal with addicts in your life or you have been an addict or are an addict, it's really kind of like, okay, I get the point. Let's, yeah, all right. Then there's not much there for you. And here, even weirder, this one's about people sharing this problem for sex addiction. Okay, so you go, okay, this is where it gets funny. No, it never. In fact, it's dark about that. It's not funny at all. You've got multiple people. Mark Ruffalo playing Adam, who's ostensibly the lead character here. Uh, his, he's been in this for years and has, has apparently not had sex or masturbated for five years, and he's a little tense. Jesus <laughs> Christ, I would be too. But, uh, you know, he's going about it. He's gone about his life. He has rules. He can't go anywhere. If he's in a hotel room, he has the TV removed from it. He has no, he uses a flip phone and nothing with internet access because it's just too tempting for him to get on there, see porn and start you know, go crazy again. His mentor, his, uh, I forget what they called an addiction. The guy sponsor sponsor is played by Tim Robbins with like the worst haircut he's ever had in his life. <laughs> but anyway, just, it's, I don't know what they were thinking. Older guy, uh, married to Jolie Richardson has been clean and sober, both from alcohol and from the sex addiction for a long time, except for obviously with his own wife. But apparently he had a serious, like hundreds of affairs while they were together sometime before but he's kind of smug about the whole thing you know like ugh, like when a new guy played by josh gad uh shows up and and watches him giving like this sort of little present a stone with an engraved expression on it to mark ruffalo in honor of a new chip that he got uh he's like oh when can i get one he's like when you fucking earned it it's like <laughs> Okay, Jesus, I just got here. <laughs> Josh Gad, who recently has been making quite a splash, really. I like Josh Hollywood, Gad. A most unlikely new leading guy, like mm -hmm. kind of a schlub, <laughs> but has real acting talent. He's real, getting there. Real charisma is the kind of the, the thing to like most in this film is whereas you've got the two characters, Mark Ruffalo and Tim Robbins, who are both the guys who've been in this for a while. They feel like they're over it. They know they got their system. They don't feel like this is ever going to be a threat to them again. Josh Gad plays the guy who 
is not even real. You know, the court is ordering him to do this. He's doing stuff like on subways, intentionally rubbing his dick up against girls in the subway and filming girls upskirt with his shoes. And so stuff these are like things that. you don't, don't do. Don't do, Brian. We've had this talk, Brian. Okay, We've fair. had this. Did you not write this down? I went to I went to Comic Con and rubbed myself up against a couple of back issues. I'm sorry. And the only chips you were after was were lays. Yes, I was trying to get lots and lots of lays and laid. Aha, see how that works. But Josh Gad actually ends up being very charming as the movie reaches this point where the two main characters are starting, who are so, like I said, they're just kind of smug and they're kind of feel like, oh, I'm okay now, start to falter and fall. And he starts to find his reason for wanting to be healed and not wanting to be like this through another member of this group played by Pink. The, the, the singer, singer Pink, hmm. uh, who is, you know, has real problems and you think, oh God, she's gonna, she asks him for his phone number because that's one of the things you do when you're, you're first going into a recovery like this is you get contact information for everyone. So if you're troubled, you can, you know, you have somebody to call. You have a network of support. And even though he's new and doesn't really know what he's doing and is scared as hell, right as he's about to break, she calls him and is like, help, I need your help. And that kind of becomes for both of them this connection where, you know, despite being attracted to each other, they, they just are, they just end up having huge amounts of strength to get what they want out of life by being friends. There's lots of other interesting little characters on the side, like Patrick Fugit. Whatever happened to Patrick Fugit, man? After Almost Famous, I thought that guy is going to be huge. He's a good looking guy now, too. He comes in here playing Tim Robbins' son, who apparently had problems with drugs, but now has been healed for a couple of years, and Tim Robbins' character still doesn't trust him, and that's one of the more interesting little character marks. Uh, I haven't even brought up, of course, Gwyneth Paltrow, who is a love interest for Mark Ruffalo, and is completely dull and uninteresting, and one of the things that brings this film down. Despite there being some spark between them in that romance it's building their story's just boring honestly that, that's the biggest problem a lot of this is going to be dull to anyone who just like those other films hasn't been through recovery or hasn't had to deal with a loved one who's been in recovery it's just it's not it's not funny it doesn't make pretensions to be that funny even though the, the, the cover says laugh out loud funny what were you laughing at, dude? <laughs> just things that were loud. I go, yeah, apparently it was just, laugh at loud. That was loud. <laughs> that is laugh at loud. I like loud. I don't know. I mean, it's not bad. There's nothing about this is bad. It's just kind of, it is for a very specific audience. And that audience isn't really me and probably isn't most of you either. But honestly, if you have been through this, this sort of, if you deal with these sort of issues, then you might actually find this to be one of the better films made about it. Right on. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Chris. Uh, uh, we're, so you already did that, Jeff. I'm going to do it again. Nah. It's like I did it once, and then you rewound it. Hey, speaking of, Rewind This is the uh, documentary we're going to talk about now. I'm really excited uh, to review this. This was a documentary about VHS collecting, which is, of course, the inspiration for our cold open. And, in fact, one of the questions that we got. like, I feel like this entire episode has been set up so that we could talk about rewind this and i'm so so happy that that's the case yeah i figured you might be a little excited about this <laughs> one. uh and a little biased maybe a little biased although i'm not actually in the documentary itself you're My, in the extra features i'm in the extra features i was interviewed for the documentary uh because uh shortly after moving to austin my the bug for collecting vhs was sort of resurgent in me and i started going to all of these weird sort of um not just like thrift stores and half price books places, but we actually, Luke and I drove out to this place in like bumfuck Texas where this guy who used to have a video store was selling out all the tapes he'd been keeping in his garage. And it was like this big ranch style home. And as you walked up the long driveway, there were just boxes and boxes and rows of boxes 
of random VHS, and it was just like Christmas. And so, like, shortly after that trip, uh, the guys from uh, Josh Johnson, the director, and uh, Topher, uh, or Christopher Palmer and his wife Carol Lee came over and sort of interviewed me about the, the, the hunting, the actual process of hunting for VHS. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't make it in the final cut of the film, but it is in the special features here. But what I love about this movie is that you really don't have to give two fucks about VHS to appreciate this movie. Because what it's really about is just whatever that thing is that makes you happy that you that you collect. I mean, I think we can all sort of relate to that about the idea that there is there is a joy and a passion in the meticulousness and the the collecting and the gathering of whatever that thing is that you collect that you're passionate about and. That's really what they tap into is sort of that nostalgia as well as the nostalgia we have for when all of us were young and watching movies, you know, on tape. So I enjoyed it quite a bit on that level. I, I, I got to say, I'm one of those people who I have no nostalgia for videotape. For me, growing up with it, I mean, it was just a means to an end, which was watching movies. Uh, the only nostalgia I really have was that period when everybody was, in fact, trading tapes of just stuff they taped off like access channels and stuff like that. That was fun. But now we have YouTube. Same difference, quite frankly, just with less effort, <laughs> considerably less effort. Right. So I don't feel that level of nostalgia for that. I feel uh, nostalgia for movies, but I get what you're talking about with that collectability. I, mean, I just collect movies, period, to have the movies, and I get like all twee about it. You know, <laughs> I'm like, ah, no, this is the wrong edition. God damn it. Not as much as Luke Mullen, mind you, but True. still. <laughs> the main thing that makes Rewind This Works is that it's just fun. It's super fun. These people are so passionate. They found so many cool things to show during this. There's a great collection of people uh, – in this film who, who just love this, including people who you wouldn't expect, like Adam McGoyan, uh, Frank Henelotter, who I love so much. <laughs> the, the Kmart version of David Cronenberg. Yeah, I love Henelotter. Exactly. Charles Band, who of course did Empire Pictures and all those terrible puppet master films and that. Cassandra Peterson, who played, uh, Elvira. Elvira. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess Jason Eisner's the one. Is he's the one who died? No, no, no. No, Jason no. Eisner's the no, director yeah. of Hobo with a Shotgun. Who's the one who died just, just the other day? Uh, the guy from Something Weird Video. Really? Yeah. I didn't realize he had died. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember. Uh, uh, I don't remember which one it is. I don't. Know. I'm pretty sure it was the guy they showed in here. But uh, yeah, who ju literally just died suddenly. Uh, you didn't see that? Like everyone you knew was posting about it on 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 uh, Facebook. I must have had my head directly up the site's ass because I did not. Uh, I did not catch that. But uh, w one of the other great things about this documentary is that it really does talk about the history of the VHS format and what it meant to film in general. I mean. Whether or not you collect VHS now, whether or not you had a lot when you were younger or harbor any nostalgia for the, the medium, the fact is that VHS revolutionized a lot, of, a lot of different facets of filmmaking in that, I mean, it was one of the first times that people could actually have movies in their home. It wasn't just you go see a movie at the theater and you hope that it comes back to a theater or to a drive-in. It was one of the first times you could actually own these things and watch them whenever you wanted. And I think Drew McWeeney, uh, who, who is uh, a reviewer for HitFix, is a really great critic and friend of mine, uh, he sums it up so well when he said it was the first time that you could go to bed knowing that when you woke up, what you were watching was still there. Like, and it was just, it, it, you know, it blew your mind a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that you're basically bringing up one of the strongest reasons to watch this if you're a film lover, regardless if you give a shit of VHS or not. This is the history 
of home video. Mm -hmm. This is the story of how this happened, of why it caught on, of, you know, what happened along the way, talking about little, little details, like which version was most successful of anything was always whoever put out porn first, things yeah. like that. Even though the, it's funny, they bring that up specifically, Drew McWeeny does. And I wonder if they filmed his before Blu-ray and super, uh, 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 HD, because HD did porno first and everyone was like, well, it looks like HD is going to win. Well, and that was, that was the great <laughs> fallacy as we all assume that, but the problem is that the they internet. weren't, that porn wasn't doing HD DVD proper. They were doing like HD, uh, like for your computer. Right. It wasn't like for HD DVD players, and it was like that was we we jumped on that too. Saying, oh, they went with HD DVD. It's like kind of anyway. That's that's yeah. neither here. Nor there. And, and like I said, and then also the internet exists now. So yes. it's like mm -hmm. okay, well nobody needs to buy porn. <laughs> yeah, that's this is also true. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I never had any involvement. There is that. no porn on the internet, as far as I am aware. But this history, it actually is really fascinating. And like I said, along the way, they show you clips from some of the weirdest just ridiculous movies you could imagine and, See, and that's the, some things. And that's the other thing that I really love in, in terms of the historical context of VHS is it allowed people to, they could afford to make their own movies. That's not something you could do with some of the more expensive film cameras, but suddenly these home video cameras using VHS tapes, you could make your own movies. And there are a lot of weird backyard movies that were made. There's an entire industry of sort of uh, homemade Canadian horror films from the early 90s that were all shot on VHS. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, most of them suck and you never want to see them. But the fact that that facet, that little, like, weird corner of film history exists is so interesting to me. They interviewed this one guy, and I felt like the one flaw is they went on too long. I can tell they thought he was hysterical, and I was like, okay, this guy's actually a little cloying. Uh, what's his name? David The Rock something. Oh, David The Rock Nelson. Yeah, who was yeah. like, one, he's obviously kind of crazy. And he made hundreds of these of just that, where it's like him and his friends wearing Halloween masks for horror movies of like stuff that's just unwatchably bad that, you know, the guys here from the Alamo and stuff like, like, uh, Zach and, 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 uh, uh, Lars, Lars. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love those guys. They love that kind of crap, more power to them. But honestly, you're like, it's about 10 minutes of that guy. You're like, okay, that's five minutes too much. He's <laughs> like, that's, it's really just not that charming. I mean, I get that it's a place and the, the, there's a minor, minor, a footnote to a footnote to a footnote in history about that guy, but still, but ultimately, like I said, this knows how to engage its audience, how to have fun. It does in fact make some strong arguments along the way for why we shouldn't totally ignore VHS even now, why we should still look back. If for no other reason, there's just, probably hundreds of thousands of things that have never come out in digital or DVD that are still floating around out there on VHS. I was just impressed when one of the guys pulls up a, uh, an instructional video for windows 95 that has, uh, two of the people from friends, Jennifer Anderson and Matthew, uh, what's his name? Matthew Perry, Matthew Perry playing their characters from friends, hosting this instructional video. Yeah. I was like, that's a thing that exists. That That is, that's the classic tape sharing type stuff. Like these weird, like, PSA type videos and instructional videos and educational films like there uh there's one video that we have about uh an old man who runs a pet store and the like the three-legged dog that nobody wants and then he gets adopted and it's like a 5 minute video and you get to the end you're like what were you selling exactly like I don't, I don't understand why this video exists like, like made it entirely knowing that someday mystery science theater would exist yeah <laughs> it's it's weird stuff like that and that that's actually kind of one of the fun things that i like to collect or some some of these weirder like vincent price there's a great video that was marketed to people 
I don't know what people, but two people <laughs> where Vincent Price hosts football follies. Really? Yes, and I have a copy of it. It is a VHS tape in which Vincent Price is narrating football like bloopers. You got to digitize some of that stuff and put it online it's or something. It's fucking incredible. It's so weird. There's no reason for it to exist, but that is kind of one of the great things about VHS. That's the thing is there's it was there was so much of that stuff coming out then on VHS. Like everything you could think of. Everybody was putting this crap out. All sorts of shit. I mean, stuff you've seen like like Winnebago man and stuff that came from the whole tape trading era and the VHS era. Uh there's just a lot of great little hidden gems. Now, I'm not one of those people. I can't get with the whole, I'd rather watch a movie on VHS than DVD or Blu-ray. Fuck that. I'm like, okay, now you're just being fucking silly. I, I, but, would, I don't subscribe to that, yeah. but I, I, do, I do see the merit in collecting it as a format, even though the, you know, some of the advanced formats are getting stronger and stronger. And I will say that I like that they got the guys from Everything is Terrible to be on here because that is a website that could not possibly exist if not for VHS. Yeah, very, very true. That is some weird shit right there. Yes. And there's, in fact, there's a little clip uh, of them inside the movie itself, but there's an extended uh, look at them on here just called Everything is Terrible in Austin, where you take a look at their odd stage show they do. And boy, is it odd. Just bring your copy of Jerry Maguire on VHS, apparently. Yeah. That's that's their their, their gimmick. <laughs> um, it's, it's the E.T. on Atari of VHS. But there's uh so many extra features on this thing. They just load it up with lots of just extended cuts on things from here. Just a lot. You know, if you like this movie, there's a lot more of it, including Brian Salisbury himself Hello. in the hunting for VHS section. Maybe another one. I don't even know. I didn't know. I, uh, yeah. I don't know. I know I'm in that one is uh, particularly. So yeah, this is one of the few times I can tell you, uh, if you buy this Blu-ray, I'm in the special features with a neck so, beard with a neck. Oh my God. It's so horrible. <laughs> Uh, I laughed. It was loud. it was quite a while ago. It's even at the uh, the house I don't live in anymore. So uh, there's also a thing that I always think is funny is about the reaction to VHS horror in Britain called Video Panic, which was like you know the video nasty scare. That's an entirely like that story. There's a I can't remember the name of it. There's a great documentary about the video nasties. You should get that and rewind this together because the story about the video nasties is fucking fascinating. Yeah, that's a that's a weird little chapter in in home video history. Definitely. But yeah, I highly recommend this i thought i would be sitting here the whole movie going yeah yeah it's nice that you like this that's that's cute how quaint uh but honestly you patronizing uh, ass but honestly this makes a lot of strong arguments for you know the love of vhs and and even more so as you started with as you launched with just the love of being passionate about something and collecting things yeah. it, it really illustrates that well and in a way that'll kind of warm your heart Agreed. And it hit me the same way that, you know, Best Worst Movie did. It's like, even if you don't give a shit about Troll 2, yeah. it's really about, you know, loving loving something that is un unappreciated, something that everybody else has kind of cast aside, and you just find something about it that uh, that warms your heart. And that's exactly what this is. And this is my pick of the week. Pick of the week is Rewind This. I guess I shouldn't say it's my pick of the week because I'm going to sound really biased, but fuck it. It's my pick of the week. Damn, I love this documentary. Damn straight. Hell Yes. Well, from Rewind This, we're going to move on to Big Ass Spider, and, which is funny because both of these films played South By last year. Uh, and and uh, didn't this play Fantastic Fest, too? Uh, I thought – I think this is one of the Fantastic Midnights oh, okay. at South By Southwest. That's where I got confused. All right. So you guys all know all those cheap sci-fi channel type movies, Sharknado and, you know, uh, Sharktopus, pretty much anything with a shark. Uh, you know, shark giant monsters, a yeah. bunch of like lesser actors, cheap special effects. They're all more or less interchangeable. Some are slightly better than others, but none of them are. They're all what you call Z-grade films or totally. Z-movies. There is, you know, 
barely trying as you get, but sometimes they work in spite of themselves. Big Ass Spider is, is another film that's intended to be intentionally. It works in spite of itself. In spite of itself. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, is another movie that that's, uh, you know, setting out to be a Z movie. But boy, is it a lot better than anything the Sci-Fi Channel has put it's out so, like that. It's so, like, absurdly fun. Like, you find yourself enjoying this and going, what is wrong with me? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the strength of the two leads here. Greg Grunberg, who uh, people, if you remember all the way back to the show Alias, he was one of the main characters on that show. He turns up in almost every single J.J. Abrams yeah. property. Even Star Trek, he's the voice uh, in the car, like, of... Of Captain Kirk's stepdad is he's a young kid and he's stolen his stepdad's car. He's the voice on the radio. Yeah, and for J.J. Abrams, he's is to Sam Ra- Raimi's old family car. Yeah, <laughs> he just, is. He's the uh, he is to J.J. Abrams what Dick Miller is to Joe Dante. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's going to be in everything at some level. And the thing is, I'm gl- really glad, even though this is not a J.J. Abrams film, mind you, to see <laughs> is him, it not to see him get a chance to actually step up and be a main role again because I've always thought he was very charismatic, very likable. He just doesn't have much of the leading man look. He's kind of a poor portly fellow, if you will. And we can respect that. We can respect that. And it's him with this <laughs> this Latino security guard uh, who is so funny in this movie and maybe even bordering on racist. I'm not even really sure. <laughs> uh, you know? We couldn't a- tell because we were distracted by the big ass spider. <laughs> You're laughing, but at the same time, I don't know. Anyway, so he's like this uh, Mendez, or I'm sorry, Greg Gunberg is uh, is is a badass exterminator. You know, he's like, oh, I'm the best at what I do. And what I do is kill bugs. And he, you kill bugs good, Johnny Rico. But unfortunately, there's a breakout of a new type of spider that the military fucked up and accidentally let loose and now is growing in this hospital and killing and eating people and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And of course, he's determined to help mainly because he's kind of uh falling for one of the one of the subordinate military people here uh you know the hot chick uh, i forget who she's played by somebody from like a big comedy group and i can't remember who it is uh do you know claire kramer is that, is that her name is? she's working for ray wise who i love who's awesome here uh but uh, i can't remember god i cannot remember she's Got like, me man yeah anyway it's a cute, sort of a meek cute thing. At first, she's like very strict military. Get away from me, you freak. What are you doing? You can't, Are you seriously hitting on me? And, you know, as it goes along, he really is, you know, kind of fearless and cool. But it's that comedy between him and the security guy that is so that obviously that feels very ad libbed and off the cuff, but is keeps you going with how just how charming it is. Are the effects great? No, they're better than sci-fi channel effects. Oh, and you and some of them are good, but ultimately it's a lot of, of like, inexpensive cg work as this spider eventually grows to the point of being like king kong size destroying the city but it's the whole time it's just fun it knows how to have fun and not just throw quality of writing out the window which is the nice thing yes it's a big dumb monster movie but they don't just write a script they didn't obviously write the script in a day either yeah i mean that's and again i mean we go back to sort of that that problem with robert rodriguez where it's like you can recognize, you can be self-aware that your movie is dumb. You can be self-aware that the concept is silly, but you still need to try. There still needs to be a, a modicum of effort put yeah. into it. And I feel like they are definitely in on the joke. You can tell because the title is Big Ass Spider. Yeah. But at with the an same exclamation time, point. With an exclamation point. But at the same time, these are people that are really trying to make an entertaining throwback. Or even almost, it almost seems to me like there is a level of sort of mockery 
of the sci-fi channel in this movie in the way that the sci-fi channel makes movies where it's like they do rest on the laurels of this is a really silly concept that's all we need i don't we don't need performances or writing or the effects to be um even marginally competent hmm. so i feel like this is almost in what it's doing sort of a fuck you to the sci-fi channel. Well, yeah, I mean it really it's it's showing look you can do these and they don't have to be fucking horrible. Yeah. They don't have to be only funny because look how bad it is. They can actually be funny because they're funny. Yeah. You know, it, it does that pretty well. It can actually have actors who are not absolutely terrible. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like this is a movie for people who really liked Eight-Legged Freaks. Yeah, Which is a absolutely. movie that I feel is not so much... Underappreciated. It's underappreciated because it, it's a throwback to Drive-In Fair. That movie is entirely a, a nod toward uh, the 50s giant bug movies that would be... And, and so is Big Ass Spider. And I feel like there is a level of care and competence that goes into those type of movies, whereas the Sci-Fi Channel can't seem to bring it to that level. Yeah, agreed. I know I'm not saying this is a great movie. No. It's not a great movie, but for what it is, for this style of movie, it's one of the best ones we've seen, I think. You yeah. know, and this there's so many of these type of look, look, it's a bad movie coming out. 99% of them are horrible, even the ones that get wide releases like Machete. Machete kills, but this one is actually good. I'm going to take a controversial stance here. It's even better than Sharktopus. Uh, it is better than Sharktopus. It's better than Sharktopus. It definitely is better than Sharktopus. Uh, it comes with a commentary with the lead actors and the director, Mike Mendez. Uh, there's a look at the South by Southwest Film Festival premiere in which it's funny. There's a, They do that sh- – that, like the thing, okay, now we're leading all the crew up on stage and the cast. And you know they mix a shot with somebody walking by camera that clearly wasn't them being walked up on stage because following right behind them is Matt Frank. Who <laughs> 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 like looks at the camera and like kind of waves, goes, oh – <laughs> that, that uniquely Matt Frank look. <laughs> that uniquely Matt Frank look. We need to have a documentary called That Uniquely Matt Frank Look. <laughs> that Matt Frank look. like It's like that Mitchell and Webb look. But, exactly. But with Matt Frank and lots of giant monsters. I don't see how that could possibly go wrong. Uh, there's interviews uh, with people. And uh, ultimately, this is a this is a great bring your friends over, drink some beer, have some fun movie that you can like on its own merits. And I got I to gotta say, I got to throw a shout out to uh, producer Travis Stevens, who produced this. He also produced Jodorowsky's Doom, uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, Cheap Thrills, and A Horrible Way to Die. Wow, he's having a good couple of years. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, this is a silly movie, and, you know, and that's great. But there are people behind this who are legitimately talented and can recognize, you know, the even the artful stuff and do this just because it's fun. And they're still able to bring quality to it. So definitely shout out to Travis Stevens. And hey, if you hate trauma films like Brian Salisbury does, you even get to see Lloyd Kaufman get killed. Yes! <laughs> I hate trauma. Anyway, why don't we move on from Big Ass Spider and talk about Birth of the Living Dead. Boy, that would be uncomfortable. That would be. I don't think I'd have a natural birth for that. I think, wasn't the remake of Dawn of the Dead, didn't it have a moment of Birth of the Living Dead? I don't know, maybe. A zombie baby was born. Uh, this is yet another documentary about Night of the Living Dead. Oh, for the love of God. My God, they just keep putting these fucking things out. They just out. keep shambling up to the release date. I mean, I get it. We all get it. Night of the Living Dead was a classic. Big it was, deal. No one knew it was going to be as big as it was. It was a big deal, we, is what I meant. We know that it was had a racial effect as well that people found to be, like big name people look back at as being important at the time that you had a black lead, action lead in here, who no one even feels the need at any point to point out that they're black during it. It yeah. doesn't really affect anything. There's not one mention made. Uh, you know, there's lots of funny little stories around this movie. Uh, about Night of the Living Dead that this gets into. 
And we've seen a hundred people talk about it already and the extra features that come with Night of the Living Dead films. Yeah. <laughs> just why not buy the best copy of Night of the Living Dead out there that comes with documentaries of its own? This is okay. There's nothing wrong with this inherently. There's some nice uh, original art for this. There's a really nice point at the end where you get to see the sadly now deceased actor who played the uh, the first zombie, basically the first modern day zombie ever on film. The right. guy in the graveyard just listed as graveyard zombie the guy who's who, coming to get barbara yeah who was one of the producers as well because everybody in this movie was pretty much a producer as well uh and he's at a fan thing and they're just loving him all these kids coming up taking pictures She's like wow that's that guy he's dressed exactly at the fan thing like he was in the movie and and he's like practically crying about how like awesome this was to like have to have this experience and then it's like oh by the way he's dead now so move along move along <laughs> what that's not fair. I was just starting to feel good. Well, I mean, he's dead. I mean, what possible chance would he have to come back after he's oh, dead? Wait a minute. Hold on a tick. Well, you know, I mean, obviously you've got George Romero talking extensively in this as he does. And anytime anybody calls him up and says, hey, George Romero, do you want to talk extensively about something? He is not hard to get, apparently. Oh, <laughs> especially, poor George. Especially not to. Well, I'm not saying anything bad about his career. I'm just saying he's very agreeable to coming on to other people's projects. Can and we see if we him. can get him on this show then? That would be nice. Let's just let's completely stab in the dark the long shot to get george romero to be on our show well, he probably would have to be in town first he's been in town a few times he has we well, can make that happen uh he's very talkative he's very funny he's a very likable guy so even though i've seen him say this stuff a hundred times before it's never hurts <laughs> to, yeah. to hear him say it again but this is ultimately just for hardcores who would still are who've already seen most of this there's not much to recommend it on its own it tries to throw it more into a cultural subtext like look vietnam racism yada yada uh you know you know what i'm saying but it's like okay yeah i know it's not really necessary to go over this it's 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 reaching so hard and yet it i'm just imagining you as a history teacher like i don't know vietnam racism break off into groups grade each other's papers i'll be over here that's pretty much what we're gonna watch planet earth now Thank yeah, you, it's community. like, here you go, here's a, a platoon. Just shut <laughs> Write a paper. <laughs> Write a paper about how Charlie Sheen won the Vietnam War. <laughs> or Oliver Stone, anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like I said, nothing bad about it. It's just been made so many times lately, even. It's not ultimately something you need to head out for. So, Birth of the Living Dead. Let's hope this is the death of the Living Dead documentaries. I also love that it's called Birth and you said head out. Uh <laughs> Funny. Mm. Well, that brings us to the final title of the show, which is also going to be our giveaway. And I am so happy we have this to give away, and I'm so happy we're talking about this. It was one of my favorite movies of 2013. I unabashedly put it on my top ten list. You're next, which we actually saw in like 2010 or something. Yeah, well, I actually just saw it last year. I didn't oh, that's right. I didn't. I, I was one of those movies they had spray painted on the side of the Alamo for a couple years. I was like, what is that? It's like, oh, that's for a movie I played back then. It was great. Well, when is it coming out? No one knows. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was one of those things that it got bought by Lionsgate, and then they just put it on a shelf. And they kept saying, it'll be released on this date. No, wait, we mean this date. No, wait, we mean this. It's just like, oh, my God, release the fucking movie already. Well, it was one of those horror films that was certainly like sitting, like everyone in horror knew about it, whether you had seen it or not. It was so buzzed from the festivals it had played at uh, that when I think when I finally got to see it, I wasn't as excited about it as everybody else was, while still saying 
that's a really fun little horror movie. Uh, this plays on the home invasion genre. Yes, it does. Uh, which obviously has been big in the past, past couple of years and brings a lot of familiar horror faces, including the director here, Adam Wingard, as is apparently his and his buddies want late, has put all his buddies in the film who also are film directors, such as Joe Swanberg and Ty West, who play roles here. But ultimately, the film hangs on the performances of both our buddy, A.J. Bowen, who we love AJ! and is amazing in this. This is one of his best roles, I think. And Sharni Vinson, who of course is the actress made legendary by Step Up 3D. <laughs> I was a little disappointed though when I found out that uh, she was dating uh, Kellen Lutz up until just recently. I was like, oh, no taste. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not together anymore, so that should tell you something at least about her her judgment. Well, they were together for like three years. Eh. And um, then the Twilight franchise ended and that gravy train was over. I know, so. Every girl's going to be like, have you seen Galen Lutz? Really? You blame her for dating him? It's like, yeah, but, you know, I mean, maybe the guy's like a Mensa graduate. Who knows? He certainly doesn't come across as one well, as an actor. Before this becomes a podcast for the E! Network. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Barbara Crampton's in this. Barbara thing. Crampton, who you may remember from films like From Beyond and Reanimator, where she is naked and doing sexy things a lot in those films. And in this film, she is playing sort of the sweet, uh, the sweet mom of the family. And what was funny is they were talking about in the one of the special features here is a documentary about how they made the movie. They actually had to make her look older. Barbara Crampton is the age where she could play this character. Yeah. But she looked so good, like when she came into the audition, that they were like, "Oh, we're gonna have to make her look older." So they had to use makeup effects to basically age a woman to her appropriate age. She's 55, and I gotta tell you, having just talked to her when we saw her last recently, mm -hmm. she's a knockout. She's still gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely it's gorgeous. It's insane. Uh, but ultimately, this is one of those, it's a comedy horror, keep in mind, but it's one of those like kind of meta-comedy horrors, and it's a, a family, A.J. Bowen bringing his new girlfriend to, to the family reunion at a resort, a remote Missouri vacation house uh, right next door to the scene of still unsolved murders yeah. so what could possibly go wrong and and what's great about this movie honestly is you know it is it is very playful and it's very fun in that regard but it really plays with the idea of what it means to be a final girl in a horror film oh yeah and what that what that sort of i don't know there's there's been this thing in a, for a long time in horror films that they've been accused of being misogynistic and that they are sort of anti-feminist but this movie Holy shit. Like, I don't want to say too much, but let me just say this. Sometimes you're the final girl because you fucking choose to be and because no one is going to, uh, no one's going to take you down because you're a badass chick. Well, I mean, the, the, the history of final girls and horrors has them surviving a lot through luck and while being intelligent, uh, you know, making very last minute decisions and still screaming and running and crying. This is not a screamer, runner, cryer. Plus, plus there's always that point where they have a psychological break. Yeah. And they become like they've snapped and now they're, they're ready to kill their aggressors because they've snapped. You never see the woman who's just prepared for anything. Yeah. It was just like, comes this like, I knew this would happen someday, which is why I brought a rocket launcher. Yeah. <laughs> shit like that. And that's what I love about this movie is that it's such a turn on, on that concept. And throughout the entire film, just, the the production the look of it the the killers with the masks outside are so cool and sort of the weird home alone type stuff that starts happening like this demented depraved version of home alone and the family dynamics like ribbing on each other the whole time and i i really love this movie i had so much fun with it the very first time i saw it at fantastic fest and i've i've seen it i saw it a few times when it was in theaters and i've kind of been 
people are probably sick of me talking about this movie because <laughs> I've been like I've written articles about it. I've talked about it on podcasts. Do you like, like this movie? I fucking love this movie. Okay, case closed. Like I said, un- unashamedly put this on my top ten of 2013, along along with all the art films and the prestigious award bullshit. <laughs> That is good, but I'm sorry. You're next. I love, love, love. You didn't love like this it better movie. than Twelve Years a Slave, did you? I no, I guess not. Yeah. I don't know. This that's apples and, and you don't know apples Ra- and like racist abused oranges. <laughs> racist, racist. Uh, but you're, you're next. You're a slave to your horror fan. I I am. Yeah. I am a slave to my horror but, fandom. And this is, you know, it's a great transfer. It comes with some extra features, like two audio, different audio commentaries, a making of your next. You know, it's a good set. And this is a film that I think a lot of your friends who aren't like super horror aficionados, like, you know, watch everything that comes out like Brian and I are, will have never heard of. And you can really take them on, off guard by showing them this one. It's it's brutal, but it's also hilarious. And you're going to you're going to end up like cheering by the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really pleased we can give this one away. We do. We have on a Blu-ray. We- well, actually, it's a it's a DVD copy. That oh, is it? Giving I'm sorry. Us to, to I'm give sorry. away. I thought it was Blu-ray. My mistake. S- sorry to to build that up too much. That's <laughs> still really good. It's so. it's still fantastic. And uh, so the way that you're going to win this one, as you may recall, we're doing sort of a uh, a mini writing prompt challenge for all these giveaways. And what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to follow one of us on Twitter at one of us net. And we want you to tell us, so the killers in this movie, they all wear masks of these various animals, and it's a really cool look. It's a very distinctive look for the film. Everybody I know has one of these plastic masks I, hanging up on their wall right now. I have now. three of them. Um, but <laughs> So what I want you to do is come up with, what if you were the home invaders in this film, you were the, the antagonist in this movie, what masks would you wear? Now, keep in mind, this could be like a legitimately really scary mask, or you could all be like that mod of Skyrim where you're wearing Thomas the Tank Engine faces. Whatever. We will not accept a Inside Out William Shatner mask. No, no, that's <laughs> been done. Uh, so just hashtag that your next giveaway, and uh, we will pick our favorite. That person will win a DVD copy of your next. Hopefully, you'll love it as much as we do. Otherwise, we build it up too much. But sorry. I mean, you can't really win. Either you underplay something and, and people don't get to hear about it and don't get to experience it for themselves, or you gush over it like I am and you've, quote-unquote, played it up too much. This film will make you see God and give you a blowjob at the end of it. Okay, now I understand the difference. Thank see? you. Thank there you, you for illustrating. now? Okay. Thank um, you for illustrating yeah. what building something up too much means. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the show this week. I want to remind you once again... We're on the iTunes. Uh, we oh, the iTunes. The you sound iTunes. like a ninety-year-old man. You sound like me. We're on the iTunes. I looked it up on the Google. <laughs> In Carta, it. God damn it. <laughs> I had so many community references today. Um. So yeah, we. You can just search one of us in the podcast section of iTunes. You can also follow the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. You can follow the website at One of Us Net. You can follow us individually. I'm at Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic, and on Facebook at Christopher Lawrence Cox Web Critic. And you can follow, or you can like. Uh, one of us on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash one of us net. We are every fucking where. And we also have a forum section that you can go to. If you uh, go to the website, just click on the forum button or you can get there by itself at forum.oneofus.net. And please do consider clicking on these links and buying things from Amazon if you're going to anyway, because it benefits the site. It keeps us able to bring you content. And you want that. You do want that. You want it. And until next time, remember, no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. What's with the rhyming? I don't know. Doctor, I I read Hop on Pop last night. I was very high. 